This is Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. Now, tree ring science is only a fairly recent development. We're still very much learning about the world's oldest trees and what they can tell us about our history and past planetary climate events. One man who's been looking into this is Jared Farmer. He has a book called Elder Floor, The Modern History of Ancient Trees. Uh, Jared is a historian and geohumanist who studies landscapes and environments. Welcome to the program, Jared. How are you? Quite well, thank you. What What is an ancient tree? How How old does a tree need to be before it's ancient? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> there is no right or wrong answer to that. I would say conventionally in, you know, kind of Western history, a thousand years is, is the, the threshold. I mean, that's a number, a thousand, that uh, means a lot to rationalists. Uh, it's very metric, <laughs> right? But it, um, you should judge trees or plants, the plants we call trees, on their own terms. So for an oak, for example, or an olive, like a thousand years is extraordinary. Actually, 800 or 500 years it would be extraordinary. That counts as ancient. Of course. For sure. Uh, if you're talking about pines or cypresses, yeah, it might be actually more like 2,000. What, what, like, what, what, what's the uh, oldest tree that we have? That we know the for oldest, sure. oldest, for sure, just under 5,000 years. And tree ring scientists are very particular about this because basically if there's not a ring, you can't count a year. The, so, so hang on. So with a 5,000-year-old with tree, you're telling me that if I, I mean, I know it sounds like, oh, well, of course, but really if I was to slice, oh, uh, uh, cut this tree down, I'm sure be, that would be a bad thing. But after that, um, after I'd been hunted down, would I be able to count 5,000 years back very clearly in rings you could with certain trees. And so basically tree ring science is actually sort of biased towards a very particular kind of plant, which is like a single trunked woody organism that produces annual tree rings that don't end up rotting. Because most trees in the world actually hollow out, they decompose and, and tree ring science, dendrochronology needs tree rings, right? Right. So it's basically just certain kinds of trees that are very resinous. So basically you need these kind of volatile compounds. You need chemicals, right? <laughs> that, that resist rot, that resist predation by insects. It also helps if the trees are in really cold environments, really dry environments. It needs to be antiseptic. Or the tree can like fall in a bog where there's no oxygen and, and then it might last a long time. So that's why like tree ring scientists love to go to like really remote mountains way up high in the desert because it's cold. If it's not hot, it's really dry. And then there are certain species that are just chemically off the chart. So a great basin bristlecone pine is the famous example. So it's a tree that lives in a really harsh environment. There's low competition, uh, not very much decomposition, but also it just produces more resin, more of these volatile organic compounds than almost any other tree. So the, the wood just lasts for thousands of years. There's like wood just sitting on the ground that's 8,000 years old. And you, yeah, you can like hmm. take it to the lab and you can read rings one by one. Most trees aren't like that. Um, most plants that have wood, they just end up rotting. And so you can't date them exactly. And so that's, that's kind of where it gets confusing because there are lots of trees that might be older, um, but you can't count them. And there might be trees that regrow clonally, but again, you can't count that. You can only estimate it. And right. tree ring science is all about precision. And so they, if you talk to a dendrochronologist, they'll say, well, there's a date or there's no date. There's, there's no in between. There's no estimation. It's just like you have a date or you don't. So that, that's why like when you see these lists of oldest trees, they're usually not the, the list that treating scientists make. Um, Can I just stop you for a second there? Um, because you use this term, tree ring scientist. And how do I put this? 
is that a is that a rather lofty term? Or, or, or I mean, for I mean, when we talk about tree ring science, are we not talking about just counting the rings and that's it? Or, or is there is there way more oh, to, the, to, to, to tree ring there, science? There, there is way more to that, right? Because like anybody who's ever cut down a tree uh, notices there are rings, and yes, uh, people since the ancient world like have noticed that and and sort of deduced that these are some sort of annual markers. Um, though it was unclear for a very long time if all plants with wood in all zones produce just one ring per year. So that was one question. Like, And actually, there are many trees in the tropical zone that produce multiple rings per year. Um, oh, really? Yeah. But this idea that you could read rings, not just count them to get a year count, um, but you could infer climate and weather data from them, that's, that's much more recent. And actually, believe it or not, it was like da Vinci. <laughs> he did it all. In the 15th century, was like one of the first people to kind of think about tree rings as basically data containers for climate and weather. But it wasn't until the 19th century, you get people like Henry David Thoreau, who was obsessed with tree rings and was thinking about New England weather and climate history. And you had a number of German naturalists who were, again, thinking about this. But it wasn't until the early 20th century that you had a man, he was actually an astronomer, uh, Andrew Ellicott Douglas was his name, he was at the University of Arizona. He formed the first treating lab, and he really turned it into a proper science, which was much, much more than counting treatings. I mean, that's part of it. But the idea is that you can sample many trees over a wide area and then correlate all the samples. And essentially, you, you first turn them into graphical form, and then you turn them into numerical form. You, you datify the tree rings. And now, basically, these data sets are part of these very large climate data sets that supercomputers um, run to create climate reconstructions, but also climate models for the future. I have so many yeah. questions. So can you just take me through why we have rings at all? Like, why does a tree have any rings at all? I mean, I presume it's to do with the summer and the winter thing, but like, yes. what, what, what? So what basically, is, this 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 is only something you find with again woody plants in the temperate zone. You need winter. So basically, when you say when you say woody plants, I I think of a tree because trees make wood. What do you mean by woody? Well, basically, trees that produce cambium, um, like uh, like a palm, which we often call a tree. Palm trees um, do not have wood. They can grow into you what? know like. The, the stature of uh, a tree, and we call them a tree, but they're not woody. Um, well, so first, why, you, what do you mean a palm tree doesn't have wood? Not in a kind of like chemical sense. It's, it's right, a different okay, tissue. Okay, it's right, it's okay. woody, but it's not actually what doesn't have like cambium. It doesn't have layers. It doesn't have annual layers. So first you need a, a, a woody plant that creates annual woody layers, and that only happens in the temperate zone. Because in, in the tropical zone, again, a tree could grow continuously and have kind of multiple rings per year. So, because um, so you said that as well, and that was another thing that yeah. popped into my head, because the Maldives is, you know, is, is in this area where their weather doesn't, you know, the temperature is pretty much all the time, you know, 30 degrees or so, and it doesn't have freezing yeah. cold, uh, you know, it doesn't have frost, which you would imagine would affect uh, the creation of a layer, and it doesn't have really um, hot I mean, not extremely hot or dry. It's all kind of the same. So would those trees yeah. just have like one ring? Because you said lots of lots of rings, and I'm wondering why that would be, because it's all it's usually just all the same, the weather. Yeah. So again, like tree ring science is sort of prejudiced towards uh, temperate zone 
conifers that grow in certain environments tend to be like very uh, harsh environments that are low competition that uh, resist decomposition and predation from insects and fungi. Anyway, so but there's still like a lot of trees in, in, in that category and you can do a lot with them. So basically, like as it gets colder and colder, the actual cellular composition of the ring changes. Right. They so it slows down, I suppose. Or some, sometimes yeah. visually you can, you can sort of see it's essentially a pause in growth. Yeah. And, and like the, the actual cells themselves look different and that's visible as a ring. But the width of the ring is often like the really important thing. So the width of the ring can, not always, uh, correspond to a limiting growth factor. So ideally, like uh, a tree that is used by tree ring scientists will be limited by a single growth factor. So either its temperature will affect the width or the narrowness, you know, the, of, of the ring, or it'll be precipitation. So basically, heat or cold or you know, wetness or dryness. Not all trees have like a, a, a single signal, climate signal that shows up in rings, and not all trees are equally sensitive. Some trees. They kind of respond to these feast and famine situations more mm. than others. And, and essentially, their tree rings uh, show in an exaggerated way these kind of weather and climate conditions. So you have to find, yeah, it's the right tree. You're looking right for place. like a, a, a good, me- a, a, they're like tools for measuring things, but you want to make sure exactly. it's an accurate and sensitive tool. So, right. so t- talk to me then about what, um, what is hidden then in a 5,000-year-old tree? What, what information right. can we get from those rings? Um, well, it turns out it's more and more. Because initially, it was just precipitation or temperature. And depending on where you sampled the tree, depending on if it was the upper tree line or the lower tree line. But over in the mid-20th century, tree ring scientists figured out like which trees and which places could be used as proxy data for temperature or precipitation. And that, and that way, you, you could on a regional or even subcontinental level kind of create um, maps kind of like a like a climate map for the past you could reconstruct past climates and, and, and make in a graph form it, it rained more or less this much in this year and then there was a drought it was really good for like pinpointing when were the really big droughts and then you can tie that to events in historical time wow but it turns out you can actually read it for much more if you go into the chemistry so some of the really exciting recent work goes way beyond um, yeah, temperature and climate. So for example, there are frost rings, which are not regional signals, they're actually planetary signals. So there, there are certain super volcanic eruptions that have happened in the past. I mean, things like Krakatoa or Tambora yeah. or the, the Minoan eruption at Santorini, which is funny, one of the really important events in the ancient history of the Eastern Mediterranean. And you know, archeologists would love to know exactly what year that happened. Um, and it turns out you can get there with tree rings from like the White Mountains of Eastern California. Wow. Because if basically there's a distorted ring that, that happens when you have like a sudden cold event, like extreme cold event. That's For sure, like yeah. Anomalous. And the trees sort of like freak out in a sense. And, and the, the, the ring just looks different. And once you recognize that, you can kind of look for other rings like that. And so they say the hunt has been on for these like distinctive frost rings that correlate with super volcanic eruptions, some of which we know about, we just don't know the date, but sometimes 
you might find the frosting and then go looking for the volcanic eruption. Right. Because, uh, of course, Krakatoa, um, a huge eruption and covered the entire we, we know what globe. You, we know what year that happened. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it, it covered the entire globe in uh, in particular and, and dropped the temperature of um, the entire world for, for a, a, a short period of time. And, of course, that stress would be registered, as you say, uh, within the tree. So once you can see that there, then you can say, oh, well, where else has that right. happened? And you can see other events. What about right. um, what about nuclear activity or CO2? Are those things recorded yes. in, in, in trees? Absolutely. So as long as there is radiocarbon in the wood before it all decays out, um, you can use that. So basically, the whole radiocarbon dating system was calibrated with tree rings from bristlecone pines because scientists could go back to a very specific year and measure how much radiocarbon was there and then they then then they could correlate that to like the whole scale right so that that's one thing that's really interesting but it, it gets even better and it's just like in the last several years that scientists have figured out that there are these moments when you get um, bursts of radiation of cosmogenic origin. So basically radiocarbon levels are spiking, but it's not coming from Earth. It's coming from a star. And it might be the sun or it might be a much more distant sun. Uh, these are called Miyake events after the name of the Japanese scientist who was the lead author on the, on the first paper. Solar proton events. It's like right, yeah. gamma rays uh, hitting the Earth in, in great magnitude and the idea is that some of these events might have been so intense they actually cause planetary and maybe evolutionary effects it's probably not great to like be bombarded with cosmic radiation at, at beyond a certain level and so and that shows up again like in the chemistry of of the wood but then you can date it precisely because you've counted mm. all these rings and then you've connected that count to another count from another tree and connected that to another count from another tree. And that's how you can push these chronologies back many, many thousands of years older than any individual sample, but you're linking all the samples. Yeah. But you can also look for like I oxygen isotopes to kind of get a sense of how like the jet stream may have changed over time. Mm. I mean, this is the new frontier in dendrochronology is, is more in the kind of the isotopic, you know, elements of tree rings. So, uh, so know, the, I hadn't really, I hadn't really considered all all of this at all. I wasn't, I had no idea what to expect in this interview, and I thought absolutely fascinating. Um, Jared Farmer, uh, author of Elder Flora: A Modern History of Ancient Trees. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Hope you enjoyed that. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Sometimes you do on this program. You just start an interview with someone, you've no idea where it's going to go, and you learn so much. I hope you enjoyed that. That's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Uh, thanks to Marisa Sullivan, Simon King, Steve Daunt, and Hugo De Silva, who was on sound. Thank you for listening. Stay curious.